You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Well, I'm so glad that we can gather here today. If you're new here today, my name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy that we can gather today. I was just listening to a in, in, in keeping with Morgan's prayer, I was listening to a podcast this week about um, persecution in China, and that's really ramped up in the last about five years, uh, especially in some of the bigger cities, and it just got me thinking about Morgan's prayer and the privilege that we have to gather without fear, and so I just want to encourage us to not take that for granted, that that's not the case in many parts of the world today, and so let's, let's rejoice that we can gather without fear and not take that for granted. If you have your Bible, let's open it up to First First John. Excuse me, I'm I'm working through a, a voice change here. You know, I'm a little delayed, or it might be a cold, one of the two. Um, but uh, yeah, so bear with me this morning. But we're in First John, chapter two, starting in verse seven. First John, chapter two, starting in verse seven. If you have a question like we've been doing, um, you can look at the important channel on Slack, and I put a link there, and also right here if you want to uh, grab that with your phone right now, um, and you can submit a question about anything. If I don't have time to get to it this morning, uh, we'll do that maybe in the video on Friday or in a podcast or something. So feel free to engage with the text and the sermon with any questions you might have. So... Let's talk about overview of 1 John for a second. One of the big themes of the book of 1 John is this. How do I know that I have assurance of salvation? How can I know that I'm a true, a true Christian? Is there any basis for that? And over the course of the book and through repetition of 1 John, we're going to see him provide us with what some scholars say are three main tests. And we're going to look at one of those this morning. But the three tests are this, the theological test, the moral test, and the relational test. Theological, moral, and relational. Theological would be like this. 1 John 5, 13 says, I write to you these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So do you believe in the name Jesus, that he is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? If so, you've passed the theological test. Secondly, the moral test. This is what James talked about last week in his sermon that was so well preached. Verse 4 of chapter 2, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. We can know that we're in Christ. Whoever says he abides in him, in Christ, see that repetition, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So that's the moral test. Theological test, moral test, and today's the relational test. And that's what we're going to look at today. The relational test. What do my relationships 
in the church say about my salvation? If I'm a true Christian, what do my relationships testify about my faith? Can we look at our relationships and see that our faith is real? Are there patterns there? Is there a trajectory there? Let's start in chapter 2, verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new command, but an old commandment that you had heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So I want us just to stop and look at that first word, beloved. Beloved. Some other translations say, dear friends. And I want this word, simple word, to enable us to hear a certain tone of voice from the author. Like a lot of times, a lot of us hear the Bible as like an angry father yelling at us. Like, you better do all this stuff. I know I can be tempted to read the Bible that way. But when he uses the word beloved, it's like a loving father gathering his kids and gently instructing them in the way they should go. That's how you should hear this. That's how you should hear this. And in addition, when he writes the word beloved, another thing that he's doing is he's underscoring the first audience and ours. He's underscoring their identity. He's underscoring their identity. He wants to remind them of who they are. They are beloved. See, that, that's an identity word. You are loved. You're loved by God and you're loved by me, John the author. So this is so important to have this settled in our minds as we move into John giving some commands. Thank you, sir. Ben Martinson, give it up for him. <clears throat> My man. Um, so this is so important as he moves into giving commands, right? If you don't know who you are, then those commands can feel burdensome, like like this. You can hear this text this morning like, do I have to do all this stuff to achieve my identity? Nope. That's not what he's saying. He's saying your identity as one who is loved, as the beloved, is secure. So now, in light of that, I'm calling you to live a certain way. Beloved, dear friends, I'm calling you to live in a certain way in light of who you are. Now, this is most clearly seen in parenting. A lot of new parents in the room, right? So let this help you. We don't say to our kids, if you want me to love you, you better obey. Like that's, that's legalism. That's borderline abusive. That brings fear and anxiety. Or it can bring pride if your kids succeed or just despair if they fail when you say it to them like that. 
You want me to love you, you better get your act together. But a gospel-shaped parenting looks like this. We say, not if, we say, since. Not if, you want me to love you, but since, I love you so much. Since your identity is secure in the fact that I love you, nothing's going to change that, now I'm asking you to share your toys with your little sister or to not lash out at mom and dad. Since I love you, I'm not going to enable you to throw tantrums. It's just not going to happen. There will be a consequence because I love you. See, that brings security. That brings the freedom to fail. That brings, that brings gratitude long term, right? Usually not in the short term. I'm with you. It's a little tantrum throwing kids. I get it. Long term. So there's a huge difference, and that's what, that's what this first word underscores between if and since. John's not saying if you want to be the beloved. He's saying since you are, I want to call you to live this way. So it's really easy for us to miss these little details. It's really important as we interpret our, our Bibles. So I, that's why I want to spend just a quick second on that word. Let's keep reading in verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing you no new command but an old command that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So what's John talking about here when he's talking about a commandment? And he's going to flesh that out two verses from now, and we're going to get there. But I'm just going to tell you what that is now so we can make sense of it. The commandment he has in mind is the commandment, again, relational test, like we started with, the commandment to love one another. The commandment to love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, verse 7 if that's the commandment, in what sense is that commandment old? See how he says, no new commandment, it's an old commandment. In what sense is that old? Well, it's old in this sense. Old Testament. Leviticus 19, verse 18 says, many centuries before 1 John was written, you should not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is in Leviticus. So he's saying, you guys have had this kind of commandment around for a long time. All right? Nothing new that I'm laying out for us today. Let's keep reading. But verse 8, he seems to contradict himself. At the same time, verse 8, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, in what sense is it new? Well, Jesus told us in John 13. You don't have to flip there, but look on the screen. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So verse 8 says it is a new commandment. It is a new commandment. 
you look back at verse 8 in your Bible, I think the key to understanding this is in the phrase, which is true in him and in you. Look at it in the scriptures. Which is true in him. It's a new commandment, which is true. The new commandment is true in him and in you. So, old commandment, we got it. Leviticus 19. But people in the Old Testament, think about it like this. They didn't have the incarnation of the Son of God. They had the promise of a Messiah, but they didn't actually have it in time, space, and history, right? But from Jesus on, which is what John's perspective is, right? We have a more defined, clear picture of the essence of what love is than those Old Testament people had. So what John means here is it's new in this sense. In Jesus, and now in the Holy Spirit living in us, we have a picture and the power. We have a picture and the power of this love being alive in us now. This new commandment taking shape in us, in the church now. Like Jesus, our forerunner, our trailblazer, he perfectly embodied it, right? So true love of neighbor looks like sacrifice. Look at the cross. True love looks like humility. Look at Jesus washing feet. True love looks like selflessness. Look at Jesus feeding 5,000 people when he's dog tired. True love looks like engaging the marginalized. Look at Jesus' teaching, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So Jesus, in him, like it says here, we have a new vision, a new way of really seeing what does love of neighbor look like. So it's new in this sense compared to what people in the Old Testament had that were reading Leviticus, and that's all they had. So John saw this. He saw it embodied with his own eyes, like we talked about in the first sermon of this series. And we have it, too, testified in the scriptures. So John saw it with his own eyes. We see it with our own eyes as we read our Bibles. You with me? So when we live in light of these words about old and new commands to love our neighbor as ourselves. It shows passing of the relational test, right? Now, let me encourage us as a church this morning. I speak for our elders when when I say, like, we see this alive in us. Be encouraged, right? None of us live up to this as we should. And that's where repentance, when we fail, comes in, and the cross and the resurrection are such good news in light of that. But we are seeing evidence of the Spirit among us. We see it like yesterday. People come in and just volunteer in church work day. We got fresh paint so you know where to park your cars this morning, right? That's a, that's a blessing. That's selflessness. That's service. We see it like when people respond all the time on the needs channel, on Slack. And there's pictures of beauty everywhere. Pictures of beauty everywhere when you look at different channels on Slack. Like meal trains. 
And that's a picture of generosity and selflessness and love. Like, most people don't set up meal trains for one another in the neighborhood or in the office. Like, the church displays this kind of love when we do stuff like that. Like, when you all give generously, I was just in Ecuador, I got to ride in the car that we helped Claudio purchase, right? Y'all are being generous, and that's changing his life. Like, that's, that's love. That's really good. And examples go on and on in our church. It gives glory to God. It gives joy to us as we participate in that. This is evidence of this new commandment being true in him as a vision, and then in us as the Holy Spirit produces this stuff. And that's why John says what he says at the end of the verse. So it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you. It's true in Jesus, and it's true in us by the power of the Holy Spirit because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Like it's a foregone conclusion. Darkness will one day finally and completely be defeated by Jesus. But it was inaugurated Another way of saying it would be, it was started, commenced, back when Jesus rose from the dead. And it continues by the power of his spirit, risen from the dead, living in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, indwelled by the spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, lives now in us, that enables us to do this command. And when that happens, what happens? The darkness passing away little by little and true light is already shining so when you sign up for a meal train it's true light shining when you show up for a church work day it's true light shining when you give generously of your money it's true light shining now let's apply this let's just think let's think about our time let's think about our calendars and the unique spaces that God has placed each one of us. What would it mean for us to see the true light shining where God has placed you? If you've got your first John notebook, maybe write something down. What would it mean for God to shine his light through you in your job, in your neighborhood, in your hobbies. Today, in the lobby, in your city group. What opportunities do you have in your context right now where the light of love needs to shine? How can you shine the light of love to others in the church and outside the church such that this is probably going to give you an opportunity to shine by speaking, by explaining. Like, sometimes people will ask you, like, why is it that you act the way you do? Like, I had a, a time I'll never forget. One of our neighbors asked us, because they recognized that Kim and I, like, did regular date nights. And she just said, man, I really appreciate how you prioritize your marriage. This is non-Christian. I just got to say, you know, ultimately it's not about us and being just great people and it just so happens that we just kind of got lucky in our marriage. No, like we're working at it. 
Love is a priority, but ultimately it's connected to our Christian faith. And I said some more things, but you know what I mean? Like, like when people ask you, you can say things like, this love that I have isn't because I'm just a great person. I'm not a great person, but God lives in me. See verse 8. And his love flows through me as I believe in him and submit to him. And ultimately it's connected to a fact of history that happened 2,000 years ago, the cross and the empty tomb. You can say something like that. It's really good. It's really good. But think right now, where has God placed you that could lead you to shine the light of God's love through you? Like, what's the next action item you could take? Is it like showing hospitality? Is it maybe a consistent encouragement of somebody? Is it a gift? And then what would that look like if it translated to your calendar, right? When it goes on our calendar, we know it's a priority. I think that's what some of our action items really need. Like, I'm going to ask this person over on this date, right? I'm going to send this gift on this date. Encourage you towards that. Let's keep going in our text this morning. Verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother... So now he's talking about the opposite of love, right? Is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. So there's our love. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, look at verse 9. Think about what, what John is saying here. John is, again, he's training us to not just listen to words, but look for deeds. Jesus said it as well. You'll know a tree by its fruit. Look at verse 9. See the contrast between talking and living? He says, whoever says he's in the light and hates there's a problem, still in darkness, right? right? So if you say you're a Christian and have hatred in your heart towards another Christian, that equals darkness. See, your deeds, your deeds show the emptiness of your words. Whoever says he's a Christian... He or she is a Christian. And there's hatred in our heart. There might be reason to believe you're not a Christian. You're still embracing the darkness. I think in our recent days, this has been a wake-up call. This verse kind of rolls into our neighborhood, American culture, and confronts us a little bit, right? It's given us a lot to consider, Like, is, like Morgan prayed this morning so well, is love our priority or are political convictions our priority? Like, I'm looking at relationships in the church and maybe through conversations I know how somebody's going to vote 
And I'm thinking to myself, I can't believe that person would vote that way. How could they be so stupid? And, and does that emotion lean in the direction of hatred? Because right? no one's going to sit here and say, I hate that person. That, that doesn't come out of our mouths. But think about it. Like, does our heart start to lean that direction? It can very easily morph into hatred, disdain, resentment. Those would be other words. Loathing. Or just a standoffishness. That person disgusts me. Like in recent days, it's been happening like a, like a pandemic. Churches divided over these things. Pastors getting fired over these things. I know of, in my sphere of relationships, I know of some. Okay, is there a time to divide a church? Yeah, maybe. Is there a time to leave a church? Of course. Is there a time to fire your pastor? Absolutely. But the question is that John wants us to consider is what is my primary motivation? Is love the governing principle, the banner we wave over all of our relationships, or is it being right or being tribal? Who's in, who's out? Who aligns with me, who doesn't? Do my emotions related to secondary and tertiary issues cause me to feel disdain, alienation, resentment towards another brother or sister in the church? Like we're all tempted towards these things. That's why we need this text. John's not unaware of our temptations. That's why he's writing what he's writing. Like, we all have convictions on all sorts of different issues, right? I do, you do. The hot ones in the last three years have been politics, George Floyd, fallout, COVID. I've got convictions on this stuff. Y'all have convictions on this stuff. But John is calling us in his word that no matter what your convictions are, can love for neighbor, can love for brother and sister in the church, govern it all. Like as you consider others, your brothers and sisters in the church who might not agree with you, is your number one priority in the midst of complicated, I get it's all complicated, tons of nuance, necessary, yes and amen, complicated discussions need to happen, yes and amen. Passion. Fueling, fueling us, right? But how can we make sure maintaining relationships of love in the church is the thing we're most concerned about? That's the question. That hatred, alienation, resentment, standoffishness, loathing, sense of superiority, like never weasels its way in to the local church. Now, listen, that's a specific application of these verses for our time and space. John wasn't thinking about those issues, right? But the temptation to hatred has not changed in 2,000 years. 
the human heart remains the same. We're all tempted towards hatred and not love when it comes to our brother and sister in the church. But let's close by looking at the blessed, bless, uh, excuse me, blessing, blessing slash, y'all are enduring with me this morning. We'll, we'll get there. We're almost done. Um, the blessing slash warning of this text that's really important. And as we read the rest of it, I'm going to read it again. Look for the words stumbling and blindness, stumbling and blindness. Whoever says, verse 9, he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So the repeated word we have here four times, I think, is uh, darkness. And a symptom of the darkness is, I can't see. When it's dark, I can't see. When it's pitch black, I can't see. I'm blind. There's a connection between blindness and stumbling, right? There's a connection between blindness and stumbling around. Have you guys ever experienced blindness? It's terrifying. I've I've experienced twice, poignant ways that I remember. One was... When I was a kid, I'm an 80s kid. Back in the 80s, we were free-range kids, right? There was no helicopter parenting in the 80s. You get dropped off at the water park at 9 a.m., have fun, we'll pick you up at 4. Hope you don't drown. You know, like that was my, my childhood, right? And, uh, and I made it, I made it, I guess. What was the problem, though, was as a 9-year-old or whatever at the water park all day long, I used to have red hair, you know, before I shaved it all off. Very fair skin, you can see. Not smart enough or not patient enough to spend, you know, a long five minutes and put the sunscreen on. And so I spent all day at the water park when I was probably eight or nine years old. No sunscreen, and I got burnt bad. And I was, I got some blisters on my shoulders, and it's horrible. And I remember standing in... Um, in a bedroom, because uh, we were visiting family, and I start to get the tunnel vision, and it just, all of a sudden, I can't see, but I'm conscious, and I'm like, Dad, Dad, I'm going blind, and I'm like freaking out, because I thought, I mean, this is it, blindness, and it was probably some type of a heat, you know, heat exhaustion or heat stroke or whatever, and so he calms me down, you know, washcloth on the head and all that, and slowly, the, thankfully, the vision came back, terrifying. I remember it, you know, 35 years later. Second time I'll never forget about blindness is um, about six years ago, um, Casey Johnson and Nate Hobart and I were in a high-speed car accident. And we were um, in Casey's uh, F-150, and we're driving down a big truck, and we're driving down uh, like a county road in Wisconsin, northern Wisconsin, and it would come to a, like a, a crossroads like this, an X, um, and we clearly don't have a stop sign. The other person does, and we're coming like this. And the last thing I remember, it's just like everybody says, like it all, everything slows down. And, and it just like those last couple milliseconds felt like five seconds. 
And the last thing I remember is like, I can't believe we're going to hit this guy going this fast. And then boom. And I've never been in a high-speed car accident before. Um, thankfully, seatbelts, we're in the big truck. We got the better of them, but he wasn't hurt either. Um, but what I never experienced is airbags before, ever. And when airbags come out at that velocity, they come out with like this dust. I don't know if you ever experienced that, like airbag dust. Um, and you can't see anything. It's just like, poof. and so we're like blind. We're, we're flying down, hit this guy, don't know where we're going, end up in the ditch. It was fine. None of us, you know, had a scratch. Praise the Lord. He hit this guy going 60 miles an hour. But that feeling of blindness, I'll never forget. That's terrifying when you're driving a car, right? And blindness in the ancient world was a really big deal, too. They didn't have modern things like Braille or social programs that could help someone with special needs. So when he uses the word blindness, that lands on them maybe even heavier than it does for us. And what he's saying is hatred has a terrifying, blinding power. But love does the opposite. Love brings 20-20 vision. A crystal clear windshield on a sunny day kind of vision. Like when, when love is the primary goal and motivation, it brings clarity of sight. Hatred blinds us. In the darkness, does not know where he's going. He has blinded his eyes. Can't drive a car. Can't see what's in front of you. You stumble around, to use the word of the text, right? What happens when you stumble around? You fall down. You break your arm. You break things in the house. You can't drive. You can't ride your bike. You can't play catch in the yard with a ball. You can't go for a run. You can't enjoy God's creation. Like, hatred feels good in the moment, has serious blinding consequences. Love sometimes is really hard in the moment, but brings long-term clarity of vision that brings glory to God and joy to us in the church. Now, I know this raises questions in our minds. Does this, is John saying that we never have to like say hard things? Like, does love make you a doormat? Does this mean that love doesn't have boundaries? Does this mean that love doesn't offer a, a rebuke at times? Of course not. Again, in the realm of parenting, we have to say hard things to our kids all the time. We have to boundaries with our kids. We offer rebuke. If you don't, that's not love. That's just enabling. It's borderline abusive. It's the same in the church. But here's the question. If it's time to set a boundary, if it's time for a hard word, if we have to bring a rebuke, like here's the first question we, say, we should ask in light of this text. Does that person, based on past experience, know that I love them? Is there any evidence they can draw on for them to trust me based on the love that's been shown? Does, does love cover the words I use? Does love enabled by tone of voice? 
Like these are the key things that enable love to be true love in the context of the local church. Let's just close with a summary. What have we seen today? A moral, theological, relational test. We focus today on the relational test. Love is the most important attribute of the Christian life when it comes to relationships. And not just love as the culture defines it, but love as Jesus defines it, as he's shown us in his word and in his life. And that love now, by the power of the Holy Spirit sent to us, is alive in us. We, we can do it. And there's a freedom to repent when you fail because of the cross and the empty tomb. Hatred brings blindness that kills. Love brings light to see that gives life. May it be so with us in the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this word from you today. May you help us live in light of your word. Father, thank you that it, that it, that it is the light to our path. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. May we walk out of here changed today with an action point that will bring light, that will, that will dispel the darkness. Lord, thank you for your life, death, and resurrection that gives us the freedom, empowers us by your Holy Spirit in us to live in light of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you talk about how standing for truth can also be connected to loving another? Many believers talk about the need to stand for truth as justification for division or fighting for rights? How do you stand for truth while still loving neighbor? How do you stand for truth while still loving neighbor when there are different ways of seeing things? When does love cover and when do we stand for truth? Is there a way to do both? A great question. I think... Well, we, we've seen this, and I know because I know this person, where this question is coming from. We've seen this um, in our culture in recent days, where on the one hand with COVID stuff, you have a, pa <coughs> excuse me, a, passionate, a passionate response that if you don't maintain these safe boundaries, you're not being a good Christian how can you not wear a mask? How can you gather in public when COVID is happening? That's not love for neighbor. See what Jesus said, love your neighbors yourself? So that's here. And then over here, just as Christian, just as passionate, this is a crazy government overreach. How can you call yourself a Christian and not stand up for this injustice? And if you won't stand up for the government here, what's going to happen when the government comes for us as Christians when it comes to gender and sexuality stuff? You're just going to, it's just a slippery slope of compromise. 
both positions, people are saying, I'm saying this because I'm a Christian, here's Bible verse. I'm saying this because I'm a Christian, here's Bible verse. Deeply divided, right? I think the ultimate question is, you can have those convictions, but I don't really care about your convictions as much as I care about how you articulate your convictions. Like, can these two different people sit at the table and still love each other? That's the test. Usually where we go south is by the words we use, the accusations of, you're less Christian than me. The tone of voice, the finger pointing. Just as a side note, like we, um, in, in my relationships, I've been exposed to both of these positions. And when they're sent in an email, it never helps. It never helps. Why? Because there's no tone of voice. And our default setting is to assume that someone's yelling at us in an email, right? If these people come and talk to you face to face, she usually goes way better. Don't email your passionate convictions. That's probably not the pathway of love. But face-to-face is probably the pathway of love. And face-to-face is probably more of a connection between, between listening and loving and us making progress. But the question is, how do we stand for truth while still loving our neighbor when there are different ways of seeing things? Well, the, the, what's hard there is we have to define what truth is. And sometimes when there's extra biblical things, like the Bible doesn't say how to handle COVID, we got, to, we got, to work, we got work to do. We, got, we have to, you know, in those cases where we're just not going to agree, the fruit of the Spirit has to cover it. And hopefully we can recognize that some of these things are not primary issues. Like both these people writing me emails, they're thinking this is a primary issue. Everything's at stake. I disagree. I think it's a secondary, tertiary issue. But even if we don't agree on that, I still have to ask myself, what does it mean for me to maintain love with these people? How can I not sin against them in the way I respond? Right? Could you elaborate more on what the boundaries of love are? More specifically, could you give an example of when love becomes enabling, when love becomes enabling? Well, I think enabling is probably the opposite of love. Um, but it's very easy for us to try to love someone, and we're not sure if this is enabling. Like, this happens in parenting all the time. And, and parents, young parents, a lot of you in the room, there's grace for you. You're not going to do it perfect, okay? But there's going to be times, or maybe it's with your adult kids that are struggling with addiction or using their money in a way that's really weird or just a relationship. Like you're going to have um, opportunities all the time where it's like, is this a time for grace or is this a time for truth? Sometimes you just don't know. And may we prayerfully um, 
prayerfully let the Holy Spirit invade that space. One of the things when I find myself kind of like in that scenario in parenting, sometimes we don't have the luxury of this, but if it's like, I'm not sure if this is time, do we need a boundary here, or is it time for just mercy? Is, do I have time to think about it? Sometimes we don't have time. And you just got to make a decision by faith. If you screw up, you apologize, okay? Or you just say to your kids, I made the wrong decision, we're making a new decision. Or you say to that friend, that adult friend, I screwed up in here, I- I'm making a different decision now. But like if you have time, oftentimes when you find yourself kind of stuck of like, is this mercy or is this time for boundary? Is this grace or is this truth? <clears throat> Maybe there's a way if I have time to think about it and pray about it, seek some counsel from godly believers to uh, mingle the two. And that's the cross, right? The cross is the ultimate mingling of justice and mercy. I find that um, when I don't give a knee-jerk reaction, oftentimes it empowers the ability to not do one or the other, but to do both. So it's, it's tricky, though. Sometimes we feel like we're enabling in relationships. Sometimes we're wondering, is this too harsh? I think I need to have a boundary here, but I'm not sure. Where it's not clear, lean on your relationships with people that are less emotionally involved than you. Run that parenting question by an older, wiser parent. Run that roommate question that you're struggling with by an older and wiser person in the church. Run that, like, man, I feel like I need to have some boundaries with my parents, right? Or I need to just let it go and and be merciful here and just let grace cover it. Run that by a trusted friend who loves you, loves God's word, all right? We got a few more. We don't have time. My voice is gone. Um, So I'll try to answer some of these on Friday or um, in the Friday, Friday family time.